If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to look at 2 Kings 22 and 23 this morning. It's always a joy and privilege and humbling responsibility to open God's Word and preach God's Word uh, to our body, and, uh, but uh, it's always a, a joy to see what God has to say to us and to, uh, Lord willing, uh, be able to open faithfully God's Word this morning. As you're turning there, 2 Kings 22, as we read through the Old Testament, much of the history of Israel from the time of the judges onward was pretty dark. Things get darker and darker and spiral downward throughout the time of the judges. And finally, you move into the time of the kings and you have King Saul who starts promising, he's ultimately the kind of king that Israel wanted, somebody who was externally impressive, and he starts well, starts humble, but then he starts to live autonomously to God's law and God's authority, and God rejects him as king and sets up David, a man after God's own heart. David also starts well and, and accomplishes many great things for the Lord during his reign, and overall his, his reign could be ascribed as a righteous reign, but David himself has dark clouds that overshadow his reign with his sins. David's son Solomon is, starts well too, and he asks God for wisdom, and God blesses him with great wisdom, the greatest wisdom that, uh, that anyone had known and, and seen at that time. And Solomon is used by God to build God's temple in Jerusalem. But Solomon also brought idolatry into the land. From his many wives to please them, he brought in all of their gods and the idols of their gods into the land. And Solomon himself began to worship and follow after those gods. And as a result of Solomon's idolatry, the kingdom, God's judgment came on the kingdom. They divided north and south. The northern kingdom is a long history of evil king after evil king. The southern kingdom, over a period of about 340 years and 20 kings, had only six kings of whom it could be said over their whole reign that they were they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But over all, over all of those kings stood the righteous king, King Josiah. He stood above them all. At the end of our passage uh, that we're going to read today, this is said of Josiah's reign. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. So during Josiah's reign, we see what could really be described as revival and reformation throughout the land. And that reformation was a result of Josiah's firm commitment to obey and fully follow the word of God. 
there was a phrase that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't used during the Reformation, but it came out of it, and it gets at the heart of what true Reformations are all about, and it is this. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. The work of reformation in the church, therefore, is never done. Not until Christ returns will the work of reformation in the church be done. So there's always more work for us to do, for our lives and for our body, our local church to be more fully conformed in our life, our theology, our worship according to the word of God. And the life of Josiah shows us how bright a reformation can be as God's king and God's people commit to follow God's word fully. So let's take a look at the life of the greatest king of Israel this morning to see the life of a man who was committed to be fully reformed according to the word of God. So we see three things about Josiah from this passage that describe his relation to God and to God's word and his commitment to follow God completely. First, Josiah's deep contrition toward God's law. The writer of 2 Kings introduces us to Josiah at the beginning of his reign as a child, do you see how young he was when he began his reign? Look at the beginning of chapter 22. How old was he? Eight years old. My daughter is six. <laughs> do we have any eight-year-olds in here, or did they all go to their class? All right, none. All right, that's really young. That's, that's our, that's our sun, Sunday school kid as a king over the nation. 2 Kings 22.1 says Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Josiah was only eight years when he began his reign as king, but he would grow to become a great man of God. In verse 2, we're given this overview, this snapshot of Josiah's life, and it is truly incredible. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And these chapters will show us how that was true in Josiah's life. He, he did not turn to the right or to the left. So God's law, God's word was the path that he was following on. And he did not deviate from that path. What a goal for our lives, to not deviate from this path, to not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, the writer of 2 Kings, between verses 2 and 3, he's going to skip forward 18 years. So, and in verse 3, he's now 26 years old, but there's a lot that happened in between that time that the writer of 1 Kings doesn't tell us about here, but Chronicles in the parallel passage, 2 Chronicles, tells us about what happened during those years. You can turn there or you can listen. 2 Chronicles 34, 3 through 7 tells us about those, those years. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. 
the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals and his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. He broke in pieces the Asherim and carved the, met, and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So, at the age of 16, something happens in Josiah's heart and he begins to seek God. We're not told what that was. Maybe it was the influence of Hilkiah, the high priest at that time. Whatever it may have been, there was a definite turning point, a definite conversion in Josiah's life in the middle of his teenage years when he began to pursue God. So four years after that transformation in Josiah's heart, now at the age of 20, he begins to purify Judah and Jerusalem and the rest of the northern kingdom of Israel of its idolatry. Second Kings tells us about these acts in chapter 23, so we'll look at that in a little bit. So, so Second Kings reorders the events because sometimes uh, the authors of Scripture order things thematically instead of chronologically. So that's why, as you read through Chronicles and Kings, they're, they're arranged in a little bit different order. So, But these events that we're going to see in chapter 23 of 2 Kings happened, actually, most of them earlier in Josiah's reign. Now, so fast forward from his age of 20 to 26, and here's where we come in in verse 3. Josiah is still relatively young, The last decade of his life has shown us a man whose heart was utterly gripped by God. And a man like that is going to care about the condition of God's house. So Josiah takes it upon himself to repair the house. It was over 300 years old now. And certainly had been repaired up to that time, but it was in need of repair. So Josiah sends the secretary, Shaphan, to have Hilkiah, the high priest, count the money That's in the temple for the repairs of the temple. That money would be given to the carpenters and and the builders and the masons. They would take that money, buy their supplies, and do the work on the temple to repair it. But something incredible happens when Hilkiah is in the temple gathering the money. He finds a scroll that had been lost. Who knows? It may have been concealed. It may have been hidden. We're not told. So he opens that scroll. And we read in verse 8 that it was the book of the law. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So what was this book of the law that Hilkiah uncovered? There's some debate, but I think it's most likely that Hilkiah found the scroll of the book of Deuteronomy, which in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, every time that phrase, the book of the law is used, it's referring to Deuteronomy. 
So there is this long lost book of the law of God that God's people had been without, maybe for decades. Can you imagine not having a major central portion of the Bible available to us today? So imagine having a Bible that's missing the Gospels. How much would you miss out with that? Imagine trying to be a church today and not having the letter of Paul to the churches. How much would you miss out on on what our our theology should be and what our practice should be? And can you imagine a church that may not have had those that receives those books and and they're confronted with their false beliefs. They're confronted with their sins, maybe for the first time that they didn't even realize were sins and false beliefs. But here they are under the authority of the word and it exposes those aspects of their, their life, their thinking, their beliefs that was not in conformity to the word of God. So have you ever felt the weight of God's commands that you've broken in a sermon or reading the word of God? It's, now now imagine, so Shaphan reading this, Josiah is later going to hear it read to him, and, and as it's being read, command after command that the people of God have been disobeying and deserving of God's wrath comes heavy on you and is like a massive weight on your chest. And that's what happens. Shaphan takes the book of the law to King Josiah, and in verse 11, we're told, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Can you imagine the mental anguish that, w- that resulted in the actual tearing of your clothes? He is so in anguish, it led him to that level of a physical response to the commands of God that had been broken. A few more verses later, we get more detail about Josiah's response to the word of God. Look down in verse 19. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Josiah's heart is humbled and penitent. That inward response reveals itself externally and weeping and tearing his clothes. So here is a man that would not be unmoved by the word of God. His heart would not be cold to the things of God. So this was not a wimpy man. This was a man who was willing to go throughout all of the land and start tearing down and pulverizing the idols that the people were worshiping. This is a strong man. This is a leader of leaders, and he weeps before the word of God. That is what a godly leader is like. When he is confronted with the true leader, the true authority of all God, he is humbled and he is broken and he weeps before God him. So Josiah saw the depth of Israel's depravity in a new light, and more than that, he heard the curses that God warned of that would come to Israel as they rejected God's law. Now, if if it was Deuteronomy that was found, can you imagine 
Josiah's response as Deuteronomy 28, 45 through 52 would have been read. Listen to these words. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or, shall, or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall leave you It shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. That was the curse that God warned Israel about. If they were to fall into their idolatry and sin, God would bring a nation against them to destroy their nation, taking them away into captivity. Josiah realizes that God's people are deserving of this curse. So he wonders what the future holds. So he sends five men to seek a prophetic word from God about what the future holds for the nation. So the five men go to Huldah the prophetess who gives them this message from God in verses 16 through 17. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book of the king that the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all their work, all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Because of Judah's persistent evil idolatry and sin, the inferno of God's wrath would not be quenched. There comes a time for individuals and sometimes nations when God's wrath has been kindled to such a degree that it is now irreversible. I pray our nation is not in that condition, although we deserve it. God in his perfect righteousness decides sometimes that enough is enough. You will reap what you have sowed. There is no turning back. Yet, though God's wrath would certainly come upon his people, though not forever, Because of the contrition of one man, King Josiah, at the hearing of God's law, God's wrath would be delayed. Look at verse 20. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I would bring upon this place. So God, in response to Josiah's brokenness and contrition 
uh, over Israel's sin and disobedience. God would not do away with his wrath, but he would delay it during Josiah's time. And that in itself was an act of mercy and patience by God. So that, that response of Josiah of brokenness to God's word needs to be our response to God's word as well. See, the more that we study the word, the more that we hear it faithfully preached and taught, the more it will expose our sin. Our posture, the word of God, as God's people, must always be that of humility and repentance. If your Christianity, if you're in interested in Christianity and, and in the church with hopes that it will just soothe your conscience and not afflict your conscience, you're sorely disappointed. Christianity is not just about giving you peace. It will sometimes strip you of peace when you persist in your sins. Yes, praise God. Praise God. It's good. It's God's love. There are There are believers who avoid certain parts of the Bible because they're too painful for them to read, because they expose their sins. So they do their best to keep those parts of the Bible at the back of their minds. And we could try to keep our disobedience out of our minds and from weighing on our hearts, but God loves us far too much to let us go on trying to hide and ignore our sins. He will, one way or another, bring it to the forefront. He will make you deal with it. If that's you, if, you're, if you are avoiding parts of the Bible, if you're hoping pastor doesn't preach on that, I want to challenge you. Go to those passages you most dread. Go to those passages you most are convicted by and expose your sins and let God crush you. Let God pulverize you to dust so that he could build you into the kind of man of God or woman of God that he saved you to be. Let him destroy you so that he might heal you. So that's Josiah. He was broken by God's word, and he was committed to following it fully. And God had patience on his people because of that. He had true repentance, true contrition. Let's go secondly to what we see in Josiah's life and his response to the word, Josiah's sincere covenant to keep God's law. Let's go to chapter 23 now, verses one through three. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So Josiah rises from hearing God's gracious words of patience and he sets out for a thorough reformation of the nation in response to God's word. And the first order of business for him is to bring God's people all together under to hear the book of the law that had been rediscovered. So he sends out word 
to all the leaders and the inhabitants of Judah to gather together in Jerusalem at the temple. When they're all gathered there, you can imagine this was a, a massive gathering, shoulder to shoulder, surrounding the temple. Josiah himself opens the scroll, reads the entire book of the law, every single word of it. So if Deuteronomy was read aloud, it would have taken over two hours to read. Two hours hearing this book of the law that you had never heard. All of these commands that you had broke. So two hours. My sermon's not going to be two hours. <laughs> Our services aren't two hours. But here, they were serious. Josiah was serious. We're going to hear all of this book of the law together. And when Josiah had finished reading, Josiah made a covenant before all the people, but more importantly, before the Lord to obey all God's commandments with all his heart and with all his soul. And the people joined the lead of their godly king. That's often the case throughout the Old Testament. When there were godly kings, when there were godly leaders, the people often followed. When there were wicked kings and wicked rulers, the people often followed. That's why we need godly pastors in the church who are committed, like Josiah, to follow all of the word of God. And the people follow their king into this covenant, into these promises to, of wholehearted obedience to God's command. So we don't know if every single person there, if their heart was changed, if it was genuine, if they followed through on this commitment, but still it was a public promise and pledge of God's people to keep God's command. It's a bold thing to do. So how dare any of us stand up and say, I will follow all of God's commands with my whole heart? Because we all know we're going to fail at that, right? We, we do. We're, we're going to fail. But there, there's a time for it. There's a need for it when we commit ourselves afresh to following all of the law of God and to corporately together commit to follow the Lord with all of our hearts. So what does this passage, what does a passage like this mean for us today as a church? Well, our church covenant is an application of passages like this where God's people corporately make promises and commitments before God to live in obedience to the commands of Scripture. So congregational and Baptist churches like ours have since the 16th and 17th century written and taken church covenants. These were pledges they made by God's grace to live in obedience to God's commands for them as a church. These covenants were made by new members, sometimes even signed. Some of you think our membership process is really rigorous. So they used to have people sign the church covenant. All right, necessarily wouldn't be a bad idea. And regularly they read them together, often before taking communion. They would renew their covenant together. We read ours every time we have a members meeting. We renew our covenant to God at every one of our members' Meetings. And this may be strange or a new practice for some, but it, it's a humble desire of God's people to
to remind themselves regularly of their commitments and their promises to God and to seek with renewed zeal to obey those promises more faithfully. So our church covenant is not scripture, but we believe it's a faithful summary of scripture and the type of life that God has called us to corporately. So every, every time we read our church covenant, I'm convicted. How about you, right? <laughs> um, I see Areas where I'm not following God as faithfully as I should be. I always see my deficiencies and that's okay. That's what happens when we read the word and we're faced with the truth of God's word. It's a good thing to see where we still fall short. It's a good thing to have regular reminders of the work left to be done. But I trust that our church covenant would not just be a conviction for you, but an encouragement. So maybe the next time that we read it at our members meeting here in a few weeks, as we read it, you'll say, hey, I'm actually starting to do that now. I'm growing in that. And, and you thank God for his grace that's at work in you. Because after all, as our church covenant makes clear, we will purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to live in this way. And so when... When we grow in our faithfulness to God's word, it's always by the aid and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we renew our church covenant together, we never look inward. We never look inward, but always outward to the only source of our obedience, and that is the Holy Spirit. Before we move on, let me give a challenge to our dads. Dads, God has given you a specific Josiah-like responsibility over your over your home. You're not a king, but in, in many ways you are like a king. Don't let that go to your heads. <laughs> All right, but you are the head of your home. That's, you are the head of your homes. You have been given the responsibility by God of leadership over your home, and that leadership is not to be used to tell your wife to go get you, get you some chips or make you a sandwich, although, you know, that's nice. Uh, but, that leadership is to be used to lead your family in serving and worshiping the Lord. That's your primary role of leadership in your family. Dads, we all need to make a promise like Joshua in Joshua 24, 15, as he was speaking to the people of Israel. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, my family, we will serve the Lord. Dads, you are responsible. You are responsible for the spiritual condition of your home. It's not primarily the responsibility of your wife or the church, it's yours. God created men to be leaders. And if you're a dad, your first responsibility as a leader is the spiritual leadership of your family, your wife, your kids. Dads, if you've been failing at this, you may need to gather your family together, maybe this afternoon, and say, dad's not been the kind of dad that God's called him to be. Been too focused on a lot of other things besides leading you to love God and follow God. But now, 
I'm going to lead you to, to love and follow God. And you begin to lead your family spiritually. Maybe you start leading your family and and Bible reading or devotion after dinner. Maybe you, you just start having more and more spiritual conversations with your family. You, take, you set the spiritual temperature for your home. You make it a place where the word of God is normal, it's natural, it's joyful. God is the center of your home and dads, you take the lead of that and be a blessing to your family. Make that covenant, dads to follow and lead your family in that way and make that covenant before your family as well. So when God confronts us with our sin and his word, we should respond with broken, contrite hearts. But God intends for us to move beyond mere brokenness to, be, to a renewed commitment to follow his commands and Josiah would for the rest of his life keep this commitment to God. He had 13 years left and he was faithful with those those 13 years. Last of all, the writer of 2 Kings in chapter 23 shows us the thorough and complete reform that Josiah brought to Israel's worship. So Josiah's thorough cleansing of Israel's worship. In chapter 23, 4 to 20, Josiah leads this full-scale, literal demolition of idolatry. Literally demolished it throughout the land. In, verse, in these verses, there are 12 actions recounted by which Josiah cleansed the nation of its idolatry. We will read the whole passage, but I'll read you starting in verse four just to give you a flavor for the whole. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed of the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and all around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it all Brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. If you haven't read that, take time to read it. It's, there's a reason why, he, why the writer of Kings is so exhaustive because this was a thorough cleansing of idolatry out of the land. So Josiah was turning back the clock on Israel's history to the purity of worship that God commanded in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. God has great, great concern for the purity of worship. He will not allow us to worship any gods. Instead of him, he will not allow us to worship other gods alongside of him or in addition to him. Here we are today in a church that believes the Bible, seeks to faithfully obey the Bible, and the, the, a church that seeks for all of its worship to be conformed according to the, worship, the, worship, the, the word of God. So if something's, something isn't found in the Bible as an element of worship, it's not going to be in our worship service. If God doesn't command it to be in, in, in his worship 
we're not going to have it. So, so you're not going to see statues of Mary and the saints here. You're not going to see icons and relics that we adore. You're not going to see pagan elements of worship mixed into our worship of Christ. You're not going to see innovation. You're going to see the word of God being followed. So what, what would this passage have to teach us who don't have idols like they had? Well, simply because statues are absent doesn't mean that idols are not present in our hearts. Idolatry is not just a danger for superstitious peoples in remote parts of the world. It's a danger for evangelical Christians. John Calvin once said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. The Old Testament scholar Alec Machir defined an idol this way. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. This is why in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, 5, we're told to put away covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. Your money has become your God. It controls you. You worship it. Your stuff has become your God. And if there's anything, any sin that Americans are guilty of, certainly greed. And the church is not, is just as guilty often with our greed. If anything infringes upon our God of money and material possessions, we get angry. We get defensive. Pastor preaches too much about giving, we leave. This, this is our greed. This is an idol. God help us to die to our greed and to use our resources for his kingdom first instead of our own. That, that's just one idol. So many more things can claim the loyalty that belongs to God alone. So what has taken on supreme value in your life and has displaced God? What is that for you? It's time to smash those idols. Some of those are sins that need to be utterly destroyed. Some of those are good things that need to be taken down to their rightful place. But we must worship God in him alone. Destroy your idols and worship Jesus. But thorough reform is not just, doesn't just include a destruction of idols. It also includes a positive restoration of biblical worship. It's not it's not just it, to include the ending of what we've added, but a recovery of what we've forgotten. And here in verses 21 to 23, we have a recovery of the Passover. Ce- celebrating it fully and completely according to the instructions God gave in his law. Look in verses 21 to 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of this covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. So the writer of 2 Kings is not saying that the Passover had not been kept 
since the time of the judges because we have examples where it was kept throughout that time. He's saying that up to that point, it had not been kept with this level of complete faithfulness to all that God's word and God's law said about it. This was the most thorough keeping of the Passover that had ever been seen in the nation of Israel. Again, showing Josiah's commitment to follow God's law completely. So the Passover was instituted by God upon Israel's deliverance from Egypt and was to be a central part of their worship, a covenant meal, a perpetual reminder of their redemption from slavery to be God's people. But that Passover was only a shadow of a greater covenant meal that would be established and instituted by Christ. On the night when Jesus betrayed, he partook of the Passover with his disciples. And in that meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is our covenant meal as the church of those who have been redeemed by the body and blood of Christ. So this meal that we partook of this morning must always be at the center of our worship as God's people. For a thousand years in church history, the church at that time through the medieval ages were denied God's people of communion. It was once a year and only then did you get to partake in the bread but not in the cup. A thousand years, God's people were starved of the supper. But the reformers like Luther and Calvin, by God's grace, brought back the supper to the center of the worship of God's people. No longer would it be just a spectacle for the congregation to behold, but it would become the regular meal that they would have the privilege of partaking in. God's people love communion. God's people long for communion. True believers don't have to be convinced and persuaded to love this meal. I remember growing up, every time communion was coming, I got so excited, and I hope you are so excited when we partake in, in communion together. This meal is too important for us to sideline, and it's too important for us to innovate. We, we need to Celebrate this supper in complete conformity to the word of God. God has given us this meal. We don't have time to go into all of the rich theology of communion, but it is, it is the gift of God to us to know deeper communion with Christ and with his people. And that should cause us to want to keep it pure and celebrate it often. So Josiah gives us gives himself wholeheartedly to the work of reformation in Israel. And again, in verse 25, what we began the sermon with, we read, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. He was the greatest of Israel's kings. But even as the greatest of Israel's kings, he was not perfect Josiah was not the Messiah. We needed a greater king who would live perfectly 
throughout his entire life, who would die a death on the cross for our sins in his place. Josiah's righteousness could delay God's wrath for a time, but God's wrath would still come. Jesus shielded all of God's people who would ever trust in him from God's wrath on the cross, not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. He was our king who diverted the wrath of God from us by taking it upon himself, taking God's fury against sin on himself. Josiah, for all his righteousness, for all of his sincerity, could not save God's people. He was a great reformer, but he could never be a savior. Jesus is our great savior. And as our great savior, he is also our great reformer. Those that he saves, he reforms. And he keeps reforming them. Church, let us be committed as Josiah and the people of God were to be always reformed by the word of God and to always be continuing that work in our lives. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We confess how weak and frail our obedience often is, God. We confess that sometimes when we hear your word and your commands, we, we do not open our hearts to receive it, but we push it away. Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, and this all comes through your Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, that you would give us a renewed desire, that you would revive our hearts, that you would reform our hearts, that we would respond to your holy word with the desire to obey it all and obey it with all of our hearts. God, may our leaders, may our pastors in our church take the lead in this. May the fathers of our families take the lead in, in leading their families in this. And may we as a church all covenant to you from our hearts. And we will do, by God's help, all that the Lord commands of us. We thank you for your mercy when we fail, but we thank you for your grace that you are transforming us to be more and more conformed unto your likeness. Be with us now as we respond to your word and song. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.